dismiss us. That's the message we need to hear this morning. So thank you, choir. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, orchestra. Thank you, Dave. You ministered to me. Where's our strength going to come from? God's mountain. That's it. We should turn to nothing else. So, When I was a teenager, I went on my first mission trip. Um, we went and suffered for Jesus on that Caribbean island of Jamaica. And we were not soaking up the rays on the beaches of Ocho Rios. We were actually in the rural part, having some Bible schools and um, helping to do some construction work on a church. In fact, we were replacing a roof, and uh, it was a pretty significant uh, undertaking. And um, so the week it went on, and kind of the last day, sun setting fast, and everybody's pitching in because we've got to finish up this project. And so we're kind of hustling to get it done, doing the cutting, the sawing, transporting, what nailing, whatever you do to replace a roof, we were doing it. And um, at that time, and probably still, I'm not sure, um, it wouldn't be a surprise for the power just to roll off at that point, you know, and to go to another community. Who knows when it was going to happen, who knew for how long, when it'd come back on. But sure enough, as the sun's setting fast and we're working hard, the power cuts. And there's no way to go flip a break or nothing to get going to make the, we were powerless to be able to finish our project in the midst of that, my first mission trip. Now, some people have been on these before and they knew what you do in those moments. I didn't, but everybody else kind of led the way and we circled in the center of that church and we get, grabbed hands and we prayed, God, we're powerless to accomplish this task without you. And we said, amen. It's no fun to get your plans derailed that all of a sudden you say, we've got a project we've got to finish and we can't finish it. You might have been there before in your own life. Certain circumstances or situations where your plans get thwarted or circumstances show up that are less than desirable and you seem frustrated by it all. And you know, circumstances can um, be difficult for a multitude of reasons. Sometimes it's out of our control. The power just, you know, rolls and we don't have any. Um, or sometimes you kind of bring it on yourself, maybe intentionally, like for delayed gratification. An athlete is training for some sort of task and so they work hard and they put all kinds of effort into it and it's no fun except there's reward at the end, right? And so we do that and we kind of bring circumstances on ourselves that might not be what we want. Well, today we're going to look at Paul, the life of Paul, who found himself in the midst of very frustrating circumstances. And I'm going to be reading this morning from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And what we're going to discover in this passage is that sometimes in the midst of difficult circumstances, you actually have an experience that was unexpected, but in the end, wholly better than what you had planned for. And so that's happening to Paul as he writes to the church at Philippi. So I'm going to read to you Philippians 1, beginning in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. Most of the brothers in the Lord have gained confidence from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the message fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and strife, but others out of goodwill. These do so out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, seeking to cause me anxiety in my imprisonment. What does it matter? 
just that in every way, whether out of false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. In the text, you'll notice that Paul expresses joy for the advance of the gospel in all situations. Now, this is not just something for Paul. This is not a biopic for us to know what's good for Paul. I think there's a lesson for us as well. Um, I want to say to you today as the church, as believers in Jesus Christ, that we should and we can rejoice in the advance of the gospel. In fact, I believe it is important for us as followers of Jesus to follow... Paul's example and root our joy in the advance of the gospel. Let that be the thing that brings joy into our life. There are all kinds of things that make you happy. If you're like me, you know, or like in our car, all of a sudden my wife will have the radio on and a certain song comes on that just electrifies my kids. They are so happy. They were in terrible moods, hollering at each other. We were getting, and then a song comes on and it's, ah, everybody's happy at that moment. Maybe you've been there before. Or you walk outside, it's been kind of a nasty week, and there's, it's warm, there's kind of a nice breeze, it's beautiful, and that somber mood is all of a sudden lifted, and you are just so happy on those circumstances. Or maybe you follow a basketball team, and that team makes it all the way to the final four, and you were in a terrible mood until that happened, and all of a sudden you're happy. Maybe things didn't go last night like you wanted them to, but there's tonight for the home team as well, and so some will be watching for that, and maybe your happiness will be connected to what happens there. But I'm not going to preach too hard on that one. But we can get happy for all kinds of things. But Paul's joy, because happiness is based on circumstances. Have you noticed that? We are happy based on circumstances. Joy is something totally different. It's this pervasive uh, uh, state of well-being. And it's, it's, it's a... Um, it's a position that you find yourself and that's Paul his position is he is joyful in the advance of the gospel and our joy too should be rooted rooted in the advancement of God's great message around the world so this passage describes four situations where the church should express joy in the advance of the gospel and the first thing we see here is that the church should rejoice in the advance of the gospel even when circumstances are difficult in verse 12 we read, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what's Paul talking about? What's happened to him that he's referring to in this passage? Well, most of you would be familiar, but Paul was a man who at one point went by the name Saul. And uh, Saul was an enemy of the church, an enemy of Jesus, an enemy of Christians. And so here he is persecuting the church. He, he feels uh, a calling to go and... Uh, to put asunder the movement of the church. And so he's traveling down the road to Damascus when Jesus totally interrupts his life. He's miraculously converted at that moment when Jesus speaks to them, uh, just speaks to him there. And Paul, all of a sudden, dramatically converted, goes on to carry the gospel to the furthest places of the world. And Acts 21 describes how at one point Paul really wanted to go to Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Jerusalem to be able to preach there in the temple. And the people warned him, his bro the brothers in the church, they warned him, don't do this, it'll be dangerous, you never know what might happen to you. Well, he went anyways, and he goes to the temple, and he's preaching there. And Acts 21, verse 27, says, The Jews from Asia saw him in the temple complex, stirred up the whole crowd, and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help! This right here, Paul, this is the man 
who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. And so the people were stirred to action. And they said, we, and so they jump on him and they, they start attacking him. They're going to kill Paul is what they're going to do until the Roman guards kind of step in and they arrest him. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. He's arrested. The next several chapters of Acts will tell you a lot about what happens to Paul. And um, he, he, he survives this riot. He undergoes all kinds of uh, different trials, uh, legal trials. He appeals to Caesar as a citizen of Rome. Uh, and so he's traveling to Rome. He's shipwrecked on the way. And now we find him at the end of Acts. He's under house arrest by the imperial guard there in Rome. Well, house arrest in Rome was not part of Paul's plan. That was not his aim. His goal was the temple, to preach there. That's what his goal was. But here he finds himself under house arrest. And it's during these circumstances we believe Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what just happened to me has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel. Well, the church at Philippi really cared a lot about Paul, so they would be very concerned about what had happened to him, about his condition. And so Paul kind of addresses that, but he quickly turns their attention to what matters most, the state of the gospel. And he says, look what's happened to me, but it's turning out for the better because the gospel is moving. In the midst of my difficult circumstances, God's kingdom is taking steps forward. So Paul's situation resulted in the kingdom of God advancing. And he writes, It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. So what would have been really clear to everybody that knew Paul, that everybody that saw this situation, what would have been real clear is that Paul's a prisoner. And he's a prisoner of Caesar's because he's under arrest by the imperial guard, Caesar's guards. But Paul says, that's not what they see. Those soldiers, the Roman officials, the other parties who had no relationship with Paul at this point, they realized, no, he's a prisoner of Christ. As they looked, they saw he's a prisoner of Jesus. And so these people that would have had no introduction to Paul before this, all of a sudden are being presented with the truth of the gospel. So God took Paul's circumstances that were less than desirable and turned them around for something good. Doesn't he do that all the time? Have you seen him do that in your life? He takes something that maybe you just think is about the worst place you could be and he turns it into what can be something very beautiful. You know, perhaps your schedule gets disrupted. You know, you get delayed on a flight. Nobody likes that. But as you reflect back, you say, you know what, if that wouldn't have happened, then who knows if this could have happened. Or maybe you're trying to, you know, you want to change jobs. So you've applied for a job and it's not working out. But as you look back, you can reflect and see, but God was at work. Even though that didn't work out, I got something so much better as God blessed me in this way. Or maybe you've had your house on the market, you're trying to sell the house, and you move it to a different neighborhood, and you're thinking, it won't sell. It won't sell. Well, could God be at work in that moment? Or maybe you got a roommate that you sure didn't want this semester, but you got him, and you're stuck with him, you know. But could God be working in those circumstances? Or maybe in that classroom where you are. Well, as believers in Jesus Christ, we must believe that God is involved in the circumstances of our life. And the most important subject matter to us, when we're feeling frustrated, when things aren't going as we plan, is what about the gospel? Even whenever they're not like we would want them to be, God is still working. Could he be using you as a witness in that classroom or with that roommate 
or in that neighborhood or at that job. Well, Paul, he was not a masochist. He didn't just kind of want to go through pain. He didn't wish terrible things on himself. You know what Paul wanted? Paul did wish to know Jesus. And in fact, he says in this book, in this letter, know Jesus and the fellowship of his sufferings. So if that's what it takes to know Jesus, he was willing to suffer. But Paul did, wanted to do that. Well, Jesus predicted that those who know him would also know persecution. In Mark 13, 9, Jesus says, But be you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to Sanhedrins, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. There was nothing surprising about Paul's situation. He was exactly where Jesus said he would be. He thought he had, you know, he could have thought that I, this has not gone the way I planned. But here he is standing as a witness before these Roman officials, potentially before Caesar. So he's persecuted and standing there as a witness to God. So how was he to react? God, I thought you cared about me. Here I am trying to give my life to you. I've done all these things and I'm under house arrest. How can I be effective for you here? No, he didn't say that. You know what he did? Exactly what the New Testament says we're to do. 1 Peter 4, 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah. So Paul was rejoicing in the sufferings of the Messiah and he had even more reason to celebrate, to rejoice. The gospel's moving forward in the midst of this. Now, Paul didn't claim that the guards were converted, that there was this mass conversion there in the prison, but the scripture is clear that the soldiers heard his message. They may not have had opportunity before now, but they've got it now, and Paul's overjoyed by that. Paul recognized that he served a God who is over the circumstances of life. So whether he's in chains under house arrest, or whether he is preaching unhindered on the Temple Mount, God's at work. That's what he knew. I think the temptation for me and the temptation for you is to focus on the current condition of your circumstances whether, rather than focusing on the potential outcomes. That's what I do. I end up in terrible situations. I'm just focused on the situation I'm in rather than what God might be doing. What God might be doing. So that's the temptation. But you know what? You can trust in our sovereign God. As creator and sustainer of life, he holds you and your circumstances in the palm of his hand. That's what he does. There is nothing outside of his authority, nothing outside of his power. The circumstances of life, the situation you're facing, the frustration you're dealing with, cannot supersede God's good purpose in your life. And you need to know that. And not only did he create you and make you and sustain you, but beloved, he loves you. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through. But let me tell you, if you have any doubts about God's love for you, he loves you deeply. He loves you dearly. How did he show that to us? By sending his own son to the cross to pay the penalty that you owed so you might be in relationship with God. So he's sovereign over your life, he's sovereign over your circumstances, and you can trust him. So Paul rejoiced as Christ was proclaimed, even in the midst of tough stuff. Well, you can too. And sometimes our circumstances actually affect other people. 
And so that's the second point here. We can rejoice in the advance of the gospel when Christians become bold in their faith. See, Paul was able to recognize that something was happening not just to him, but to those people that were watching, to the other believers who were not in chains. He writes, most of the brothers here in the Lord have gained confidence from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the message fearlessly. Okay, so from Paul's example, we know the potential outcomes of following Jesus for him in that period of time. You could be arrested. You could be beaten. You could go through a riot. You could have to survive a ship, uh, being shipwrecked. And so they, them watching this happen to Paul could have said, you know what, if that's going to happen to him, we just need to be quiet, pack up, move out. But that's not what happens. You can imagine that they were fearful as they watched this happen. But those Christian brothers who were familiar with Paul's situation, they saw Paul's confidence in Christ and they said, if he can do it, I can do it too. And they become emboldened by Paul's circumstances. You know, I've noticed that um, sometimes as important as it is to know the right thing to do, just because we know what to do doesn't mean we do what we should do, right? Just because you know, because some of you know, I know I should be doing this, but instead you are doing something completely different, right? A lot of times what we need is to be motivated by somebody else's example. So somebody else decides, I'm going to take my, you know, managing my finances seriously. So they're dramatically trying to cut debt in their life. They've signed up maybe for our total financial stewardship class and they're really taking it seriously. You see somebody else doing that and you say, I can do it too. Or somebody else starts eating in a healthy way. You think, ah, if they can do it, I guess I can too. But maybe they don't love coconut pie just like I do. But maybe I can try, you know. Well, sometimes people we don't even know motivate us. Uh, my eight-year-old son, Caleb, joined a running club a little over a year ago. Boys run hard. And uh, one of the things about boys run hard is at the end of the training, you have to run a 5K with an adult. And so uh, my wife decided that wasn't going to be her. And so uh, um, I had to start running so that I didn't get completely embarrassed in this whole thing. So, you know, in fact, I, I've been, so that's a year and a half ago. I've, I've, I've been working at it. This is a body built for a 5K, but I decided to run that 10K and uh, the bridge run yesterday, and I'm still preaching today. So it worked out. But in our first 5K, um, I got winded about, you know, the half mile point, you know, as I'm, I'm trying to run this thing. Caleb instead goes on and gets first place in his age group and division, and I'm just, I was supposed to run with him. He was long gone, you know, and I'm trying to make, I remember mile two, I'm running up the hill somewhere in Irma, you know, and there's, um, you know, just thinking, what am I doing? I'm going to throw the towel in. There's no way. Why am I, who runs? Nobody's chasing me, you know. And I look to my left, and there's this woman that's coming up, catching up with me, you know. And she's pregnant, and she's still running up the hill. And she's pushing a stroller with a baby in it. And I think, good night. There's no way I'm going to let her pass me. She passed me. But I kept running. I dug deep, and you know what? I finished the race, and I'm alive, you know. So, anyways... Whether we recognize it or not, we are affected by people. So Paul says the brethren are affected by his imprisonment. If he can do it, we can do it too. So they didn't see what happened and said, we got to shut our mouths. Let's try to be a little bit more discreet. No, they get more bold in their faith. They probably start preaching even more clearly and possibly even more publicly. That's what happens when leaders set a positive example. It's not what the leader accomplishes. 
but that the followers see and they, they become more motivated to do more. So the Christians who are not in chains, they, dem, they see Paul demonstrating what it means to share in the sufferings of the Messiah. And they say, me too, me too. So it's clear that people influence people. So you're influenced by the people around you, right? Who are you watching? We are sometimes distracted and we let people set the bar real low. Who is it that sets the bar high that you can start following their example? Let me get a little bit more personal. People are watching you. What's your influence going to be like in their life? You have the ability to influence people that are watching you. Paul rejoiced because the gospel was advanced as Christians became bold in their faith. Can I tell you something? I don't know what you feel like the state of the church is or the state of the gospel is, but I believe with all confidence that the Holy Spirit is still breathing on the faithful today. He is still emboldening believers to preach his gospel. He is still equipping those that he calls to the mission field or to ministry or to be witnesses. He is still equipping them. He is still comforting and guiding those who would willingly take up their cross and follow him. I don't know specifically where God is calling you to or what he's calling you to, but I do know this. He wants you to be his witnesses. And I can be more specific. He wants you to be his witnesses right where you are. Folks, we have a great opportunity coming up in Easter. Now, don't just sit here and say, we'll pray for the row. I hope somebody invites somebody. If your joy is rooted in the gospel, it takes you inviting that person. I'm going to give you permission to tune me out as long as you're going to be praying, God, who is it? Who is it, God? Who do I need to invite? Lord, who can I share with? Who can I give one of these cards to? Who can I encourage to be here? Now, we can't force people to come, but I believe we have no excuse when it comes to inviting. We rejoice in the advancement of the gospel as believers become bold in their faith. But Paul mentions that some of the people now boldly preaching actually were doing it with pretty questionable motives. Um, he, so, and he sets a great example for us. Paul rejoices in the advance of the gospel even when motives were questionable in these people. Paul writes in verse 15, to be sure some preach Christ out of envy and strife. And then in verse 17, they proclaim Christ out of rivalry not sincerely, seeking to cause me anxiety in my imprisonment. So some people see what's happening to Paul, and they start preaching out of envy and strife. They see Paul as a rival, not as a partner. And so what does that mean? What do you mean they're preaching to make Paul anxious in prison? Well, it seems that some people want to take advantage of the fact that Paul was gone. Now, we don't know exactly what this means. Now, it could have meant that some people said, if we preach more boldly, they'll be more cruel to him in prison. They could have done that. Or it could have been that they said, okay, Paul's out of the picture. we got to preach the gospel, and hey, maybe we'll get our following going too. You know, forget Paul, here's Wes on the scene, you know. And that might have been what they were doing, but that's, they, were, they had very poor motives behind the reason what they were doing. Um, and, and instead of being focused on God's kingdom, they were trying to build their own kingdom. And so how did Paul react to that? He rejoiced. Why? Because he didn't care primarily about the person and their motives. You know what he cared most about? That Jesus is being preached. That the gospel is moving forward. 
In the end, all glory should go to God anyways, not to people. So be concerned about people, but recognize that God sometimes works in the midst of poor motives to accomplish his great purposes. Because he's sovereign over circumstances, he's sovereign over all those things. So in spite of our motives, he still is doing a good work. So God can take impure motives and use it to advance his kingdom. And Paul rejoiced over that. And what we must remember, though, is that no matter what, the goal is to see Christ proclaimed. That's the final thing here. The church should rejoice in the advance of the gospel when Christ is proclaimed. Paul declares in verse 18, what does it matter? Just that in every way, whether out of false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. And he keeps going from there. Well, we discussed how Paul... um, Rejoiced at those with ulterior motives who preached the gospel. But he also says there were some who preached out of goodwill. Verse 16 says they preached out of love. Well, why do they preach out of love? Well, Paul says it's because they know I have been appointed for the defense of the gospel. That's verse 16. So they knew, okay, Paul's not here. Who's going to fill in the gap? We can do it. We can do it. Their motives were pure. Either way, good motives, bad motives, we know that the purpose in Paul's imprisonment was about the gospel. So knowing that we have a God who's sovereign over all circumstances, we can express joy as Christ is proclaimed in spite of the means or in spite of the circumstances in us. You know, sometimes what happens is we get wrapped up in the details rather than the most important detail. You know, we can get focused on everything else but what matters most, which is the outcome. So we can focus on all this stuff and forget it's about the gospel. It's kind of like, you know, watching um, uh, the uh, Carolina play in this run up to the uh, Final Four. I, I, I went to that Marquette game and you watch that first half. And man, at the, at the end of that game, I could have been saying, you know what? That was, they, they just played a terrible first half. They didn't do this right. They didn't do this right. But in the end, what happens? People call into the radio. A win's a win. That's what they say. Well, y'all, that's what the deal is here. A win is a win. The gospel is moving forward. So Jesus gives purpose to the church before he leaves. And as everyone is gathered, as he's preparing for his ascension, Jesus offers this commission, this last statement. This is what he says to those that are gathered to hear him and that's been shared for thousands of years. Jesus says, whatever you're doing, this is what I want you to do. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And that's what matters most. Now, we get wrapped up in a lot of things, even in our life where we're living for Christ. We can get obsessed with politics. We can get so concerned with the swing of morality in our nation. Now, these are important things that Christians should be engaged in. But a lot of times, it causes us to make people our enemies. Whenever the scriptures say that our war is not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and kingdoms, So all sorts of things that may be important, but they are not most important. Christ calls us to go and make disciples. The thrust of the church should be about the gospel, about Jesus proclaimed. So how do we apply that to our lives? Well, the challenge I would say to you first is this, to determine what's most important to you. Now I know that you're here, so church, Jesus, the Bible... It fits in there. But what's most important to you? What are you obsessed with in your time? Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's the stock market. Maybe it's how many followers you got on social media. Maybe it's sports. 
Well, let me tell you, it is worth rooting your joy, your life, in the gospel and in Christ being preached. If Christ proclaimed as most important to you, then being persecuted for your faith will not derail your joy. There is nothing more important than God's kingdom. So let your joy be rooted in the gospel. When I was in Jamaica and we circled up to pray, I learned a lesson there. Because after we, you know, stopped praying and dropped hands, my first missed trip, I don't know what to do. But I remember the determination on some of those seasoned believers who had big faith right after that, immediately walked back to their equipment and they turned it on and the power was on. And we finished the project. And you know what? We rejoiced. Not because we finished the project, but because God intervened and he accomplished his purpose in us. We rejoiced because we saw God working and advancing his purposes among us. So Paul challenges the church in Philippi to increase its joy. Church, we must increase our joy, but it must be rooted in the gospel, in the advancement of his kingdom. Our Father in God, what a delight it is for us to be able to study your word. What a delight it is for us to know you and to share in your sufferings. Father, we pray that you would help us to root our joy in you and the advancement of your kingdom. God, there's nothing more important to us than that. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. Help us now to make commitments to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the Holy Spirit's still breathing, and some of you today may need to respond to the invitation by responding to the gospel and say, you know what? It's not most important to me. In fact, it's kind of a side side item to me. But I want to make Jesus most important today. We're going to have an invitation. And maybe that's the decision you need to make. You come forward. Some of you may need to take a next step in following in believer's baptism or joining the church or whatever it might be. Whatever happens, you respond. Let me invite you to stand. As our choir sings, you respond.
You can read in the bulletin about the parking garage, and today there will be extra uh, Richland County Sheriff's deputies over there, and they're going to be facilitating the exit of the garage uh, even better, so that it will be coming all out, always. So once we, once we finish here, you can't go back in driving in until it's all clear. So it tells all about that in the bulletin, so you can read it, take that home, study it this afternoon, and uh, you'll know exactly what you have there. Then the ushers are going to be at all the doors. We've talked about the cards. Pastor men mentioned them a couple weeks ago. Wes just mentioned them. Thanks for the great message, Wes. And let's put feet to our prayers. Take some of these cards. We've got plenty of them. If you're in a restaurant this week, many times we're in a restaurant. Pastor will ask the waitress, do you go to church anywhere? No. Well, we want you to come to First Baptist. And you can be there, a friend in, in the neighborhood, someone at school, at work, and just give them this card. Most people are going to go to church somewhere on Easter, so why not here? So just give it to them and say, hey, I'd love to invite you to come to our church on Easter Sunday. So take these cards and uh, let's, let's, let's uh, pass those out and really invite our folks to come. All right, anything else? We're good? All right, well, let's pray together, and then we're going to sing that little close of total praise close us out. So choir, stand. Congregation, you may stand. We'll pray and then sing. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of letting us come and be together once again. Lord, thank you for the message that Wes has shared this morning. And, and I just pray that you would, you would bless him. Thank you for him. Thank you for Pastor, for Linda. Bless them in a special way. And I just pray that as we go through this week, that Christ would uh, just live in us, dwell in us. Help us to put feet to our prayers and to invite people to come, especially those who need to know you. And we make this prayer in Jesus' name.